We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML on the greatest day of the Christmas season. Yes, the greatest day of the Christmas. You didn't hear that wrong. It is only mid-November, getting into late November, but already we've had the greatest moment of the Christmas season given to us. Mariah Carey has been snubbed in the courts in her quest to be known as the Queen of Christmas because of her insufferable song, All I Want for Christmas. I mean, there are some bad Christmas songs out there. There are some songs out there that make your ears bleed at Christmas. But I got to say, none rise to the level of All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey, at least to these ears. And the idea that she could have been declared by the courts able to market herself as the queen of Christmas. We have a Christmas miracle upon us. No Mariah Carey extra marketing. Maybe, you know what the courts should have done? Because she lost in court, they should have said, oh, and the penalty for having gone through the courts, nobody can play that song all year. Wouldn't that have been another glorious Christmas gift? Welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Uh, Scott is, um, he was working on the legal team for Mariah Carey, which is why he's off this week. Uh, He'll be back next week. Not really, but he'll be back next week. We have much to get to today. We are going to be talking to a very specific group of the audience for the next few minutes here, namely those who like cheese which I would assume is a huge percentage of the audience. I mean, who, well, my son is not a big cheese fan, but other than that, he's about the only person I know who doesn't like cheese. Everyone else I know pretty much is a fan of cheese of some kind. Well, turns out some of the best cheese, and I didn't know this at all, some of the best cheese comes from around here, and a Hamilton guy is one of the people making some of the world's best cheese. Did you know that? Uh-uh. Uh, the Hamilton Cheesemaker has won an awards, including Best Canadian Cheese at the World Cheese Awards. Utter Way Artisan Cheese Company took two bronze, two silver, and a super gold at the event. Tor Kruger is the cheesemaker who is behind this. He joins us now. Tor, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm excellent. Congratulations. I had no idea that this area was known for its cheese, but amazing. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're just up here, uh, Stony Creek countryside, you know, not far from the Niagara border, but definitely, uh, you know, uh, th- Hamilton is definitely uh, uh, you know, going on the map for lots of things these days. So we're very proud to be a part of Hamilton and, and representing Hamilton to the rest of the world. Now, I, this is, I realize this is probably a silly thing, but I, when I think of cheese, for whatever reason, I think of Europe, I think of sort of the old country making it there. Mm-hmm. Do we have a lot of cheese makers in this? Re- and I don't mean like com- commercial stuff. I don't mean the stuff that you buy really cheap. I mean, good cheese. Do we have a lot of real cheese makers in this area? Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, you know, like around, um, yeah, I mean, all, all around Ontario, we have great cheese makers. So there's some of, you know, some of them are some of the best in the world as well. I have a friend who won world's best cheese a bunch of years ago. She's up near Ottawa. And uh, so, de- you know, there's lots of great cheese makers coming out of Ontario and Canada as well. How do you, did you learn it here? Did you learn how to do this here? Well, so I, uh, um, I'm originally from Germany, but I came here in my teens and, and my original background was more in the, 
uh, tool and die industry, but I've always had a passion for food and cheese in particular. And then in 2013, I went to uh, Vermont and studied at the University of Burlington. They had an artisan cheese institute there, and that's how I learned my craft, basically, yeah. Because I can't imagine there are too many tool and die people that morph into the cheese world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely a second career for me, but it's always been a passion of mine, so I'm very happy that I took that step, yeah. When you do that, though, because tool and die can be a very lucrative business. You can make good money. You can have a good career in that. Is there generally, I mean, maybe now that you're one of the best, but when you get started, are you thinking, I'm going to make a great living making cheese, or are you thinking, I'm giving up a lot of money, but I'm going to pursue my passion? You know, it wasn't for me. It was um, years ago. I used to be a co-owner of Cheese Shop Unlock in, in Hamilton, and and that was sort of my my initial foray into the world of cheese. And for me, it was really about the passion of it. Like, I, I never, I'm obviously, everybody wants to make money, but what really drove me initially was I just love making cheese. You know, I love food in general, but cheese was a real thing, and and I'm just happy that I pursued that passion. All right. So let's talk about making cheese for a minute because I don't think most people really have any idea how you do that, maybe very generally. But c- can you take the take 30 seconds or a minute or whatever and in the Reader's Digest version explain how somebody makes cheese? Well, I mean, just let's talk about, uh, you know, these, some of the award winners that were at, at the World Cheese. So basically when we're talking about like a hard cheese like the Ovea Negra, which won Super Gold, um, you know, you basically your milk goes in the vat. Uh, we we uh, we pasteurize the milk, then we bring it down to a certain temperature, add cultures, let it sit for uh, you know for a bit. We set the milk with rennet, then we cut it, cut that into uh, curds, like small pieces. Uh, we actually cook the cheese for a certain period of time, and and then it, after that we put it into cheese molds. And after the cheese is drained for uh, uh, twenty four to uh, thirty six hours, then after that it it goes into the aging room. So it's it's a long process, and this particular the one that won uh, uh, best Canadian and and best cheap milk cheese in the world, that that one actually uh, needs to age for at least six months before we release it because the flavors take some time to develop. So yeah, it's it's a very involved process. So and again, this may be a very simple question, but I just have no idea when. If everybody is following a similar idea, a similar plan of how they make cheese. How do you make better cheese than someone else? What are the things that you can adjust or change or add or subtract that changes the flavors that makes a cheese better or worse? No, I've, I've been really lucky. I've, I've had some great training, but I also have some great people here at the plant. I, I, you know, I have, I work with another family, the Fidanzas. They're, they've been in cheese for forever and three days and, and they've, you know, uh, they've bring, brought a lot of expertise in here and I've learned a lot from those guys and it's a real group effort here and and we just um you know it's we learn every day like we're always improving um you know we're always tasting the cheeses trying to figure out you know what, what can we do different you know we want to we want this particular cheese to be better then i'll kind of look at some cultures that i want to maybe add additionally and, and you know it's one of those things you know in cooking you immediately know what you've done if it's good or bad whereas in cheese a lot of times you don't really know until the cheese ages for a bit so It's just something you have to kind of have a a bit of a feel for as well. I know that, you know, there's a lot of people um, who have maybe been a little more, um, paid more attention to the craft beer world, for example. And so they say, you know, the quality of the water has a lot to do with when you make beer, one of the things you put in. How much does the quality of the milk play into whether your cheese tastes good or not? And what what the sheep or the cows or whatever are eating? Oh, that's a a huge part of it. I mean, it's, it's, first of all, we only work with, uh, um, milk from one farm directly 
So everything that we get delivered here is not what they call pooled milk, but it comes directly from that uh, from that farm. Uh, the sheep milk vets came from Ovino, and uh, so we get it direct from them. And yeah, obviously, what what the animals get fed uh, it has a huge uh, uh, influence on how the cheese turns out. The best always is to have uh, pastured animals, meaning grass fed, and you as a it's a big deal. That's why a lot of cheeses from around the world, like if you get certain uh, cheeses from certain areas, they have a very particular flavor. It has a lot to do with the what the animals are actually eating in pasture and so on. It's 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 a it's a big part of it. So if I was an an, an I'm a cheese enthusiast, but I wouldn't exactly describe myself as a cheese expert. I mean, I like it. I don't know if I would you know I don't know if my palate is there. If I had different sources, different milk. Same mm-hmm. animal, but different milk from different farms, and you made cheese out of it. Would I be able to tell the difference? You know, it really depends. I think probably the biggest difference would be uh, having a pasture-raised animal compared to uh, uh, you know an animal that's basically just um, in, in in the stable. Um, so you'll you'll taste that difference. You know, grass-fed, you will definitely taste the difference in, in, in the cheese afterwards for sure. It is, uh, it's an amazing thing that, uh, that you've done so well, uh, with this, where, if somebody wanted to buy this, it's Christmas time, people need something yeah. to, uh, to have friends over. Where can they find your cheese if they want to try some of this award-winning Hamilton grown Hamilton based cheese? Well, we're, uh, our factory outlet is on 410 highway 20, uh, here in Stony Creek, Hannon. Uh, we also have another, another location in uh, Paris at the Winsey Mills market. And, uh, we're also, uh, now at Sobeys. You can find our. Oh, terrific. Okay. Yeah, some of our cheeses are at like Sobeys across Ontario, and lots of independent retailers as well across Ontario are are carrying our cheeses. So yeah, you just and if you don't see it somewhere, just ask for it by name. Well, it's easy to remember the Utter Way. Nice play in words. Utter Way Artisan Cheese Company. Uh, that's Tor Kruger. Uh, congratulations, Tor, and thanks for the time today. Really appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. That is, uh, you know what? If, again, if you're going to have people over, why not have some not just great cheese, but great local cheese that, you know, it's a conversation piece as well as being delicious. Who wouldn't want that? We are, speaking of Christmas, right at the forefront, unless you work for Costco where Christmas started in April. Uh, we are at the beginning of the Christmas season, and this is a particularly tricky one for a lot of businesses. Not necessarily the big box stores or the huge chains because they buy in bulk and huge quantities and they can bring their prices down a bit. But if you are a small independent business and you're trying to survive this Christmas season when we have inflation, when we have threat of a recession coming, when we have interest rates rising so people don't want to borrow as much, and you can't probably bring your prices down to the same level as some of those huge companies that, as I say, can, can sell in bulk. What do you do? How do you make this work? It's a really tough spot to be in. Dan Kelly is president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins us now. Dan, how are you today? Good to be with you. Really glad you're along with us because this is a, I imagine, a tricky one for a lot of small businesses is trying to figure out where they find their niche in this very, very difficult market right now. Oh, it's, it's brutal to, to be a small business owner right now, regardless of the sector you're in. Uh, these are some tough days. Of course, we were told at the start of the pandemic that there would be this boom time to follow, uh, where we would all be crawling out of our basements and spending our brains out. But that sure hasn't happened. Uh, and, it, and if it has for some, it's certainly not the local, small, independent businesses in our, in our neighborhoods. Right now, if you can believe it, 
uh, fewer than half of small businesses are back to normal levels of sales, pre-pandemic levels of sales. That means that that the majority of businesses are actually making in aggregate income less than they did prior to the pandemic starting. They are also facing a mountain of debt, uh, on average about $140,000 in COVID-related debt. Uh, and on top of that, their costs for everything that they buy, uh, everything that the, all the taxes that they pay, those have risen significantly. The cost of labor, the cost of insurance, the cost of, uh, of pretty much everything with, with tax hikes actually, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks away. Yeah, and I was thinking about this before we talked, and I thought, you know, probably the inflation thing, uh, surely it matters. Although I think if people were really coming out of COVID, as you describe, and feeling optimistic, inflation, they'd live with it. And interest rates, you know, that would be difficult, but they would probably live with it. It's this seeming, this looming threat that we keep hearing about this recession that's just around the corner that seems that I, I, I get the sense people really don't want to be putting themselves in a bad, in a worse situation. So you've got this, well, I don't know how much I really want to spend this Christmas. It all, it all just adds up to such a, a difficult place. It, it sure does. And, and as you rightly mentioned, in, you know, the, the rising interest rates, if you borrowed money to get, to get through COVID to keep your business afloat, now much of that is exposed to a higher interest rate, obviously in enhancing your pay, increasing your payments. Um, the fact that that inflation is taking hold and, and sapping consumer income means that average consumers have fewer dollars to spend in your business as they go through the holiday season. And if you miss out on on sales over the holidays, especially for the retail sector, you may be done. Like you, you've tried to hang on for two two and a half years over the course of the pandemic. But you miss another good holiday season, uh, that could be the end. Many businesses say that the, the six to eight weeks leading up to Christmas could represent 40% of their sales for the year. Uh, and so if those sales don't materialize uh, because of product, you know, the, the, inability, the unavailability of some of the products or the rising prices that consumers are paying or the fact that consumers themselves are, are, are armed with fewer dollars, um, that can be devastating. Dan, we often hear when the small businesses, the independent businesses are trying to mark out their territory, the one thing they often say is, we will offer you personalized, better service. Well, if, it's, if we're selling shoes, we'll fit you with shoes better than you would get from buying online at Amazon or whatever. When money is tight, is that enough? Is that enough to convince people to go to those small stores instead of somewhere cheaper? Well, look, you you open by saying that there, of course, you know, everybody's looking for a better deal. It's understandable given the, the pressure that we are all feeling on our bottom line. At the same time, yes, on the service side, that has been where businesses compete. These days, though, what we're seeing happen is is the trend towards showrooming. And showrooming is that you go into the independent shoe store to get fitted to see which ones work for you. And then you find, you know, go on Amazon afterwards or the large multinational oh. retailer mm. and buy it online. So the business has all of the costs of providing the service to you, but none of the income from the sale. Wow. And if, if I could give one recommendation to consumers, it's don't do that. If you're going to use the, if, if, if that business is helpful to have in your neighborhood to, to help you with your shoes or to give you some ideas of which, you know, what, what speaker to buy. Do them the courtesy of of completing the sale with them too, even if you're spending a few extra bucks. Uh, that service exists because people are patronizing and spending money there. These are not props. They're not service locations of a multinational. These are families that are running the business. 
Uh, and if we don't support them, they're not going to be there. I, I had not thought of that, but it's a, it's a tremendous point. So is there a beyond that, beyond what's the word, shaming, imploring, guilting, whatever word you want to use, beyond that of getting people to go to their local business, is there anything that could be done either by a government or by, I mean, you can't, governments can't say, well, for a small business, we'll charge no taxes or something like there's nothing right. that, there's nothing that simple, right? That could be done. Look, but there are lots of things that can be done to support small businesses from, from you know, and, the, and there's a role for consumers to play, a role for governments to play too, uh, big corporations as well. Uh, for governments, we're saying, please don't make the problem worse. Uh, as I said at the outset, there are tax hikes planned January 1st, just to make sure your listeners know, all of, you know, every working Canadian's paycheck will go down as of January 1st as a result of a significant increase in Canada pension plan premiums and a significant increase in EI premiums. So all of us are going to see a cut in our take-home pay as a result of those two tax hikes that start. Then, of course, in April, we have a carbon tax increase. Putting those things on hold, at least until inflation is under control, would be our one of our recommendations to government. One of the things consumers can do is when they do visit an independent business and want to make a sale, is choose carefully your form of payment. Uh, credit card processing fees are massive on small firms, and many people don't know that when they use their cards, particularly their premium cards in a small merchant, that merchant might pay one and a half, two and a half percent of the sale just for the courtesy of transacting. Uh, if you pull out your debit card uh, or pay with cash, that money goes to the business. Uh, a debit card transaction uh, for members of CFIB could be three cents for the full transaction. Whereas if you buy an item for $100 at a small merchant, that merchant might pay $2 to make that transaction happen. That's a huge amount of income that would otherwise go to the business itself. So supporting the small firm by using cash or debit, uh, that can be a powerful way of, of keeping businesses alive. Dan Kelly, uh, it, is, uh, it is good advice. Dan Kelly, President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Thank you so much for this today. We will, we will take that to heart. Thanks for doing this. Anytime at all. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Eric Kahn, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics, Implications of Monetary Growth with the Toronto Metropolitan University. We want to talk about our inflation rate. This is a situation that has been affecting, inflicting, uh, whatever, pain on us for a while now. And this is something that all those interest rate hikes we have been told is supposed to bring down and bring down and bring down to the target of about 2%. Seems that as I'm reading this, we've hit 6.9% and stalled there now. Is that, is my understanding correct? That's right. We've stalled at about 6.9, but it wouldn't surprise me if that number tends to rise a little bit in the new year we know that spending tends to spike over the christmas season and you know even if the spending is lower on average to other christmas seasons it'll still be fairly high i mean you're accurate and what it really is telling you is just how big a problem this is look what's gone on with the prime rate set by the bank of canada it was 0.25 when this began And now it's going to creep up around the 4% range when they raise it again. And rest assured, they're going to raise it again, which really is absolutely nothing short of a measure of magnitude by saying this is still out of control. We haven't got this harnessed anywhere near what we want to or what the government forces us to do by our mandate of 2%. So as much as this week 
Premier Ford offered some shekels into some pockets to continue with our European analogy. What you're really seeing now is the Bank of Canada saying this is purely out of control and we're going to have to keep throwing something against the wall. And a Bank of Canada only has one thing to throw against the wall, Scott, and that's the interest rate. Why has it stalled, though? Because it was going down little by little as they raised the rates. What? Why did it not continue when the rates continued to rise? Because there'll always be fluctuations and there'll always be ebbs and flows. But you, you can't discount the fact that inflation is a very simple phenomenon. It's when aggregate demand outweighs aggregate supply. And we're still in a situation where the amount of goods being purchased way exceeds the amount of goods being produced. Now, part of that, of course, is pandemic based because we know the amount of money that they printed during the pandemic was absolutely not just ridiculous, but unconscionable. And so the central bank now has to deal with that. But you still have spending. I won't use the words out of control anymore, but still out of the bounds of what is normal for a well-functioning economy. And the supply chain, again, is it catching up? Well, it's catching up, but it hasn't caught up enough. So you still have aggregate demand conditions outweighing aggregate supply conditions. Simply put, that's too much money chasing too few goods. And here we are. But you have this situation, and I guess it's in any country right now, but to try and resolve this, you could slow down government spending and printing of money to put less into the economy, but then you're going to have people screaming, and I probably justifiably so, that all the programs that the poorer people in our society, the less well-off people need to get by are not available anymore. It's it's sort of, you continue to add programs that helps people and make the economic system work worse, or you fix the economic system, but you make the lives of people who need the help worse. Oh, Scott, you should have taken my first year course when you were at TMU because you've stumbled upon something super important, which is the difference between a micro view and a macro view. Let's just take something simple like savings. On a micro level, on a household level, savings is good. But on a macro level, if everybody saves, nobody spends, that's bad. So you've really got to see the balancing act right now that the Bank of Canada and the government is trying to juggle. They're trying to figure out where should the interest rate be to cool down savings, sorry, to cool down spending. But the government doesn't want to stop all of those programs to which everybody has become so comfortable. It is the ultimate juggling act to try to bring down the inflation rate. And so that's why you see it now being so sketchy in terms of results. They're going to continue. They're going to continue raising rates because, frankly, they don't have much else to go on. That, that's all the Bank of Canada can do. They can play with the money supply or they can play with the interest rate. And our central bank, Scott, plays with the interest rate. So what you're seeing is a very logical um, continuation of something that began a couple of years ago. So is there a point at which the central bank, we, we raise interest rates, we raise interest rates, we raise interest rates, and it's slowly, slowly, slowly reducing inflation, assuming everything works as it's supposed to. Is there a moment though, when it goes too far and the inter- and it spins too much and we're now in big problems because the rates have been raised too much? Yeah. Another excellent point. You're two for two. What's going on there is that you have to look at the economy as a laboratory of the world. We're not physics. We're not chemistry. We can't pull a lever. So you never know you've gone too far until you've gone a little bit too far. So rates are going to go up. They've already basically collapsed the housing market. They're trying to bring consumption way down. Now, what's the wild card in this or the X factor that you're talking about, of course, is employment. It hasn't really hit employment yet. People haven't stopped 
hiring. And luckily, this is the Christmas season <coughs> where hiring tends to actually go up. So I think what you're going to find is in the new year, not right away, but around midway through 2023, sadly, it's going to hit the labor market and that's going to usher in a recession. And that will be sort of the marker for the Bank of Canada to note, okay, this has gone as far as it needs to go because we don't want to put the economy into wide-scale recession or, God forbid, depression. Eric Kam from Toronto Metropolitan University. Always love having you on here. Thanks for doing this. Stay healthy, Scott. If you pay any attention to the news, and I'm assuming the fact that you're listening to this show in this station that you do, you will know that over the last number of weeks and months, one of the world's hotspots for protests and people taking to the streets has been in Iran. And there's all kinds of reasons, but specifically at the start of this, it was a young woman who, well, she went against the cultural norms, I guess, or at least against the the, the authorities and ended up being killed. They they say she died of a heart attack. I don't think too many people believe that. Um, let me bring in uh, Sharzad Mojab, a professor in the Department of Leadership, higher at adult education at the University, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And she's the acting director of the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. Is this story, because there's so many things going on in the world right now, Ukraine and missiles going into Poland and all, oh, there's so many, China. Is this story in Iran getting enough attention these days? I think that it needs to get more attention because it is implicated in exactly everything that you mentioned here, from the geopolitics of, of the Middle East region to the realigning of, of the uh, Western imperialist forces, the relationship between U.S., Russia, and China. And uh, so Iran and the war in, in, in Ukraine, the um, terrible economic conditions in, in the world, they are all coming together and not only for uh, you know creating the grievances of our people of, of Iran, but also the world, and and that's why that I think the the world's attention, and especially young people, women, in terms of of the demands of our people of of Iran, uh, requires significant uh, attention and and solidarity because. They, what they are demanding on the streets of Iran, people, what they are demanding is a demand of, 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 of the world, is the demand of, of the uh, women and young people around the world, actually. So I think it requires much attention and a better understanding uh, of what is going on in Iran. I don't want to simplify this to a point that becomes ridiculous, but the demands that you talk about, at, for your understanding, from your position, the underlying thing that the protesters and the people there are pushing back against and fighting for, what is it? Let's look at the slogan that now it is becoming truly a global slogan, women, life, freedom. And, and if we unpack this, it means that the people, uh, that women um, needs to have uh, freedom of choice and their body should not be disciplined and, and, and punished and controlled by the state, by the church, by the, the patriarchal mode of, of uh, 
uh, understanding uh, gender and, and sexuality relations. Life, it means peace. It means the end of war. It means that uh, having a um, environmental conditions that it is not being destructed and, and destroyed. It means the end to poverty, unemployment, and, 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 and in particular youth unemployment. It means the end to capitalist social relations and freedom. It means that freedom of, of associations, gathering, separation of a state and, 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 and religion, and freedom in terms of, of academic freedom and, and women's rights, women's bodily uh, freedom, and um, also freedom in order to dream and demand mm. and imagine a different world. And, so and this is... Don't this- you think that... Sorry, and this is not without precedent because I, some time ago I saw some photos, and this is even maybe a little almost almost before my time, but some photos of Iran decades ago, and there were you know women with no hijab, no headscarves, no at least no forced ones, um, you know, wearing looking almost Western in the streets, and it was it, like there was a time when this was more the norm, correct? I mean. I will not use the language of, of the Western and Eastern okay. because I, I think that it is neither cultural in Iran nor it is a Western. This is part of, of the way of a women's being and, and the choices in, in terms of, of the dressing, covering or uncovering their, their bodies. These are, yes, you're right that this has been going on for 40 years at least since the coming into power of, of the Islamist forces. So the compulsory veiling, it is beyond just the covering of women's body. It is about suppression of ideas. It's about managing and governing and disciplining public and private life. It is about creation of a gender apartheid system. It is about the control of of universities and, and campuses and students. So yes, this uh, resistance of people of Iran and especially women started literally a week after this or a few months after this um, regime came in into power. So it has been unceasing. It has been going on, uh, you know, for, 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 a, for a long time and uh, moments of uprising um, has been happening uh, uh, in in the last two decades, in in mm. particular, in the last few years, in in particular, and again, it is the the combination of a national oppression. I mean, Gina Mahsamini was a Kurdish woman, and and which sort of of brought the the suppression of of the Kurds and other national minorities in Iran, Baluchs, Turks, and Arabs also at the forefront of, 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 of this struggle. We have to, uh, we have to run here uh, very quickly. We only have 30 seconds, but there were a number of tweets that were sent out in recent days that were inaccurate, said Iran had sentenced 15,000 people to death for protesting. Those turned out not to be true. Do those kind of misinformation tweets that go out, do they hurt no, I mean, it's, it's bad enough. Do we, does it hurt when wrong information is put forward and then people go, oh, it's not really that bad? Uh, 
But I, I mean, you're absolutely right. There is no need for for exaggerating uh, what is happening. Even uh, executing one person yes. should really, uh, you know, make all of us um, angry and frustrated, and 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 try to stand in solidarity with with people of Iran. There are list of of um, executions is is coming out, and then this government is ruthless. It is only the second one after China with their record high record of of, of execution. So there is no. They are not exaggerating. They are going to do it. But we don't need to sort of of not get into the depth of the brutality of mm. of this regime by exaggerating the numbers about you know fifty thousand. Right. But yes. all. 12,000 that have been arrested and and but not have been kept into captivity for a long time but this is a a, a process of a tactic of thread and and fear um but people are are um resisting Sharzad Mojab uh, from University of Toronto thank you so much for doing this very much appreciate your time today thank you for the opportunity You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to say there are two groups of people in the financial world. Those who understand everything all about the cryptocurrency world and those who hear cryptocurrency and their eyes glaze over and they have no idea what in the world is being talked about. For the next few minutes, we are primarily going to be talking to that latter group, the one who has heard the term. Obviously, everyone's heard it. But FTX, which was a, a – a, it collapsed. It was a, an institution that was a cryptocurrency um, institution. It has collapsed billions of dollars now missing, lost uh, investors, some very famous investors out of money. Um, the, the whole thing is, again, for those who are not fully up on the whole cryptocurrency thing. This is a real head scratch. I want to bring in Carmi Levy. He's a technology analyst and journalist. He joins us now. Carmi, thanks for doing this today. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. This is, as I say, for those who understand the cryptocurrency world, this is, you know, it's a fascinating story, but they get it very clearly. But I do think there's an awful lot of people who still are trying to wrap their heads around how this works and how something like this could happen that so many billions of dollars just disappear overnight. Well, the easiest way to think about cryptocurrency is that it's an asset, just like a stock, just like a currency, just like anything else. And you can buy and sell them and speculate on them. They go up and down in value. And because they're still relatively new and we're all still sort of figuring it out, there is, uh, and because of that volatility, if you are a shrewd investor, you can potentially make a heck of a lot of money if it moves quickly. As we've seen with, for example, Bitcoin in recent years, as the value has gone up, you hear these stories of you know, people looking for Bitcoin on these old discarded hard drives because they're worth millions of dollars. Um, you know, that's, the, that's the, the right side that investors want to tell you about. The flip side is, is you can make a lot, you can lose a lot. It's highly speculative. And because it's so, it's so new, there are no protections in place. When I put my money into a bank, for example, there's the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation, and that has a, it's a program that insures me and covers me in case that bank suddenly becomes insolvent. Well, when you're, when you're dealing in cryptocurrency, um, you, you are not protected. There are no CDICs or FDICs like they have in the U.S. There are no uh, protective speed bumps or brakes on it. It's all speculative, and if something happens, guess what? You're on your own. 
And so the, this FTX, which is basically it stands for future exchange, it was an exchange. Uh, and what exchanges are, they're basically like you know, banks for cryptocurrency. It's where you would go. You'd go to an exchange online. You can go to their website. You can use an app and you can buy cryptocurrency and then you can store it like in an account. And then as the cryptocurrency goes up and down in value, you can buy it or sell it, make money, hopefully not lose money. And of course, for some investors who have iron stomachs and can take the volatility, they're into it. The problem here is, is with it specifically with FTX, is no one really knows what happened. They say they were hacked. There was a run on the exchange. Suddenly they weren't liquid. Suddenly, first they were promising that everything was okay, and the next next thing we knew, they were filing for bankruptcy and they were collapsing. And federal investigators were sniffing at the door. So this is one of those examples of. If, if you've got the guts and you can mm. spare the loss if it happens, these things are awesome. If, if you want to play that high-stakes game, it's like playing high-stakes poker. Have at it. But recognize that the risks that you run of losing it all are incredibly high. And FTX is now it's going to go down in history as one of the most significant cryptocurrency failures ever. In fact, the guy who was brought in, the new CEO, to kind of clean up the mess, he was also the guy who oversaw the cleanup after the Enron debacle decades ago. And he's saying this is even worse than that. So well, let's, let me jump in. Carmi, let me yeah. jump in for a sec because you mentioned him. His name is John Ray III. And he had a quote, and you were talking about regulation a moment ago. And this is where it blows my mind. We're talking about such enormous amounts of money. And yet here's, what, here's a quote from him. It says, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information has occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. When I re- That's the end of the quote. When I hear that, I'm thinking, who in the world puts vast amounts of money in an organization where the people who are running it sound like rubes and there's nobody who knows what's going on. It's bizarre that people would put this much trust in it. You know, I've been saying the same thing ever since cryptocurrency sort of became a thing in the early part of last decade. As Bitcoin started to rise and as it started getting attention as not just only a currency, but a speculative instrument, I said, you know, you know, be careful. It's almost like the modern day equivalent of a Ponzi scheme. They're looking for uh, they're looking for for marks. They're looking for targets. People are going to lose their shirts. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happened. Yes, some people have made money, but this is not we're not suddenly going to move our entire economy over to cryptocurrency and expect it to be smooth. It's not going to work that way. And so the reality here is, is that all of this takes place outside of the regular regulatory protections that we enjoy for the rest of our conventional financial transactions. So when, when, you, when you put money into a pension, when you go to a bank, when you deal with a legitimate investment firm, there are all sorts of regulatory agencies that make sure that there are rules and everyone follows those rules. But when it comes to outfits like FTX, crypto exchanges specifically, there are no rules. It's the Wild West. And so you literally can have a teenage wonderkind who is a billionaire on paper, at least, uh, who makes the rules. Um, tells everyone via his social media account that everything is great. Uh, and because people are so, and let, let's call it what it is, greedy. Mm. Uh, I think we lost Carmi. Um, thank you to Carmi Levy. We'll, we'll leave that there since, uh, since we have dropped off. It is, it is amazing though, that, that if you, if you haven't been following this story totally, totally closely, 
the guy who was behind this, it's it sounds like it was this almost like a hippy dippy commune in the in Bahamas or Barbados or wherever it was where the folks were it, it just it's a bizarre story that this many people would put this much trust and this much money into this and now poof seems to be gone. It is just it's an amazing amazing thing. You should um, if you have again as we started, if you have been following the story and you understand all this, you know exactly what I'm talking about and there's nothing that I've just told you that is new. If you're new to this though, and there's a lot of people for whom this is still kind of a new Wild West thing, you definitely should go online and do a little bit of reading about FTX just to find out what was going on. It is truly a disaster, first of all, financially. If it's not Enron, well, it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of people who this is going to hurt, but also, um, you know, for down the road, when it comes time for you to invest or someone says, you know, what would be a great investment cryptocurrency. And you say, ah, no, I've been reading about FTX. Thank you very much. I'll put my money into hmm, pick whatever else it's, um, it is truly a bizarre story. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We may or may not have school on Monday morning. We may have a strike outside with picket lines on Monday morning. We don't know yet, but QP has set a Sunday afternoon deadline to come up with an agreement. Or Sunday, the schools, public and Catholic in Hamilton, will be closed for another Time when students will not be in class. I want to bring in Alyssa Freeman. She's a PR and pop culture expert. Joins us now. Alyssa, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. There is um, there is no doubt in my mind that a, a week ago, two weeks ago, that the public was firmly not on the side of the government when they tried to bring in the notwithstanding, or they did bring in the notwithstanding clause. That did not play well. The polls show that that was not popular. People didn't like that. QP had uh, a vast majority of the public support. If there is a strike after the government has apparently offered three and a half, three point six percent over multiple years to workers at a time when a lot of people are being squeezed, will QP maintain their public support? You know, I think it all depends on the messaging, and you're absolutely right. About two weeks ago, when the government had a very heavy-handed approach with the notwithstanding, people didn't like that sort of overlord of power, and it really worked against the conservatives. So, you know, when they did their polling, and a lot of political parties live and die by the polls, you know, six in ten Ontarians didn't agree with that measure. And they probably looked at that and thought, oops, you know, we may have a majority government here, but I guess we better not just do what we feel like doing. And sometimes in cases like this, you just think that, well, we'll just do what we want to do. But you know what? You really need to read the room. And Doug Ford and his uh, team did not read the room, and they read, but they read the room quite clearly after they got the polls. Now, there has been negotiations, and the leaders of QB have been on TV. They have been messaging, and they have been quite effective. However, when you're riding the wave of popularity... Sometimes that wave can only go so far. Sometimes you catch it at the right time, which the unions did. And I've never really seen unions have such widespread public support and, you know, parents overtly um, uh, supporting the, the, the education workers and sending around Instagram posts that says, say, I'm not sending my child and they're not going to be having any online learning because we support the education workers. I've never even seen that before. But you know what? 
when you have to keep making arrangements because your kid's supposed to be in school and you're supposed to be working and everything gets thrown onto its head again, popularity can wear thin. So QP needs to play this very, very carefully. Yeah, I mean, there is actually now a tw- a trending Twitter uh, handle. I don't stand with QP, which is which is new. If you go on, it's. Well, probably started by the backroom folks. No doubt. Look, no, but I mean, (laughs) no, and I don't. I wouldn't dispute that. However, I do think that QP runs a risk of overplaying its hand a little bit here, especially when, again, a lot of people with a recession looming. We've been talking about this on the show today, and people who may be losing jobs or maybe in small business who are facing tough times. And here, the government, whether we like the government or not, has offered three and a half, almost four percent a year. And then all of a sudden, well, now that we've done that, it's not about money. We are demanding that we basically have job guarantees. I, I, I start to think that maybe QP runs the risk of overplaying their hand here. Well, you know, you're really, it's really what you bring up is really, really valid. So um, even I'm just reading this tweet right now, QP turned down a 15.2% raise as the rest of us stared down a recession and rampant inflation. This particular tweet has more than 1,600 likes on it. So um, you know, as a result, you got to look at that and think, oh, public sentiment is not going to carry the day here. And that's the problem with when the unions are negotiating. They get something and then they realize they can't whine about that. And then they don't get everything that they're asking for. And that's the part where it starts to erode. And when you start talking about guaranteed jobs and jobs for life, I don't know where that is, with the exception of being a tenured professor at, at a university. Really, I don't. And people are thinking, okay, we get that education workers are important. We uh, get that we all send our kids to school. But you know what? Please don't ask for everything in the candy store because we've got to get back down to business. Well, and there's, and we talked about this on the show yesterday. Uh, this is an ongoing topic. But uh, one of the other things that's really at play here is we also have negotiations coming up with teachers unions, not just the education workers and health unions and so many others. And, you know, if you give already 15% is, is a lot, now you're going to have all these other unions coming saying, well, if you can give them that much, and this is really, I mean, small potatoes money-wise compared to some of those other ones. Um, th- th- I, I, do, I think that the public also sees the reality of public finance after COVID and the deficits and the debt. And I, I maybe I'm misreading it. Maybe I look at this and I'm seeing it differently, um, at least, and I, than, uh, Alyssa, than, than what the public is seeing. But there's a certain point when I think people say the government and the taxpayer can't just pay everything always forever. Well, you know, when when all the unions start getting in line, they sort of see what, you know, the first one in line got. And then they think, well, that's how we're going to negotiate. But they will not have the same sentiment as the QP workers did, because at this point, public sentiment is done and done. And we're probably going to be in another quarter of a recession. So this is where unions, you know, their narrative has to be very, very careful about what and why they're asking. And if it's not, and if it's just the typical whine of we need more for our workers, well, people look at themselves in the mirror and go, well, I need more for myself. And the only person advocating for me is me. So, and and people just don't want to be keep opening the public purse, which, by the way, we fund. So it's not an easy road as it may seem. There may have been a bit of a blip in the trend line here, but that's not something that I foresee continuing because I've never really seen really convincing narratives coming out from unions 
they typically are sort of a one-note wine as far as I'm concerned. And public opinion is not easily swayed. So what I think we saw with CUPE might have been a one-off, but it's certainly not going to support all the other unions waiting in line. Well, there's a great line, and it's been very, very successful for years now, which is it's for the kids. It's about the kids. And that's a... They're they're, they're doubling down on that, Scott. You know, know, Lexi certainly has um, that line down, and it has not change. And I will tell you one thing about this party is that when they're given their talking points, they do not sway, no matter what the question is. And so it's about the kids. We want to keep the kids in school. At first, that did not play. I found it very interesting that Leche keeps, you know, hammering on that. And the longer these negotiations drag out, the better that narrative is going to come back and play for the government and go against the unions. It's an interesting one. We got to let Alyssa go, but it's interesting because both sides are going, it's for the kids. It can't be for the kids on both sides, but we'll, as Alyssa says, we'll see which side ends up convincing people that they are doing it for the kids. Alyssa Freeman, I'll always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Always love being on. Let's talk about meat for a few minutes because uh, we, for as long as people have been around, have got our meat from the same place. You find an animal and you slaughter it and you butcher it and you cut it up and you cook it up and away you go. Well, we now are seeing a change. There are now options to grow meat in a lab. And some people are loving this idea for a variety of reasons. A, it's a little more controlled. B, it doesn't affect the environment. C, you don't have to have an animal that gets slaughtered. There, there are reasons that some people are pointing to this as a potential real step forward. And just recently now, the FDA down in the States has said, yeah, it's safe to eat. Go ahead and eat it. If you want to start building a a business, building a market around lab-grown meat, good to go. Question is, are people who eat meat going to want this kind of meat or do they want it the old way? Well, let me bring in someone who I know can talk about this, uh, Dr. P. Ravi Selvagenopathy, um, who is a professor of mechanical and biomedical engineering at McMaster University, the Canada Research Chair in Biomicrofluidics, which is um, far too intelligent for me to even know what that means. But we're thrilled you're here. Thanks for taking the time today. Hi, Scott. Nice to be on the program. So good to have you here. This, um, McMaster was was a, a place that did this. They grew meat in a lab over a year ago. So this can't be, or is it much of a surprise to you that other places are now looking at this and the FDA is looking at this and, and we may be heading down a path of this being very common? I, I think it is a, it's an inevitable consequence of growing demand for meat, right? Um, so we have been growing meat for a long time. But what, we are, what is happening is we're running out of land and water resources to grow the crops to feed our animals. And, uh, and the, the general consumption of meat over the past 50 years or so has constantly increased. So if we want to meet that additional demand, we need to find a way to have a more intensive cultivation of meat. And that is what this technology provides. So I see it more of an inevitability uh, that in, in the next 10, 20 years or so, this is going to complement the meat that we get from farm-grown animals. Can we, and when I say we, you, can you, can scientists, can those who work in the labs, can we grow any type of meat? Could we say, I want to grow rabbit, I want to grow beef, I want to grow bison. Can we do any kind of meat we want? 
It is possible. Uh, so uh, the, the muscles that our body has and animal body has uh, inherently contain cells uh, known as satellite cells that are capable of uh, growing into muscles. And that's why when we exercise more, we get uh, greater muscle mass, for instance. So they have these regenerative properties. And one of the, the technology is about extracting those cells and then growing them in a much more um, intensive way in a smaller um, volume so that we can get enough uh, products for human consumption. So, so it, is, it is possible, although the procedures have to be developed for each of the individual animal cell types, and that is what companies around the world as well as academic groups are doing. You raise a very interesting point, though. You mentioned exercise. There are different animals, different meats come from places where the animals eat different things or where they have different levels of exercise. Is there a way to replicate those things, the best parts of the meat that we want through this process, or is it not able to do that? It is It is definitely possible, and, and tissue engineers have been doing this for more than 30 years or so, although for a biomedical application. Uh, so tissues uh, that are developed in the lab are used as uh, mimics of human tissues for drug testing purposes. And for those purposes, uh, people have taken um, human skeletal muscle cells and then uh, generated tissue-like structures. And uh, if you keep them stretched by applying a mechanical stress, uh, what you see is a muscle-like development in this. So what we are hoping to do is to adapt similar technologies that have been done in the past for um, drug testing purposes to, to grow tissues in the lab but uh, to do that with animal cells, and if we do that, then we can get muscle-like uh, consistencies. At McMaster, have you have the scientists there grown edible meat? Have you eaten lab-grown meat? We we haven't grown um, uh, edible meat per se. I mean, I, I should say we've grown it using mouse cells. Uh, so for a cat, I think this would be a feast. <laughs> yeah. And, and what we are currently trying to do is to uh, develop uh, this using bovine cells or from cows uh, so that we can we can get um, a, a tissue slab-like uh, consistency out of them. Uh, but what we specialized in here and what we've demonstrated uh, a year ago was that we could uh, add both the muscle cells and the fat cells. And the fat is quite important for taste, right. while muscle is quite important for the texture. Uh, and what we've shown is that we can combine them in different uh, ratios so that you can get uh, something that is uh, a lean meat type um, composition, or you can get more of a fat-rich meat type composition like Wagyu beef or, or other kinds of uh, products that are out there. I don't know if you've given thought to this yet because of what you've been doing. It's not really this, but I'm trying to imagine the scale that we would have to have in order for this to start replacing animals out on the fields or whatever else. I mean, is it possible, is it theoretically possible to have warehouses that would be large enough that we could grow enough meat in artificially, if you want to say it that way, that we could supplant the live animal market? Uh, you, you've hit the, the nail in the head spot on, Scott. Uh, the scale-up is, is currently the technical challenge that people are trying to overcome in the field, both in academia as well as in, uh, in the industry. Uh, but it is not an impossibility. There are solutions out there. Uh, they need to be demonstrated at a pilot scale first and then scaled up. 
but it is potentially possible to to expand that the initial cost of this is going to be uh, relatively high compared to palm grown uh, meat and then over a period of time as uh, as uh, industry gets familiar with the technology and improvements of the technology will then lead to lower and uh, and lower cost but i think what this provides us this technology provides us is the ability to uh, tune the composition and the content uh, to what we want so for instance uh, we get milk as 1% 2% and 3% and we think that is a choice that we have in the supermarket uh, we could do something similar for the meat as well and i i mean i do think that there would be a market for this for the various reasons the only concern that i might have if i was in this field is probably what a year or two ago everybody was hearing that plant-based meat was going to take over the world everybody was talking about plant-based hamburgers and we've seen that market share drop considerably so are people going to want to put all this money into a startup for something with the risk that maybe people then say ah i'm not sure i really want that i i i don't know the business side of things and whether people would want to put money into 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 a startup but the the uh, lab self based meat is going to be more um uh, biomimetic or natural as compared to the plant uh, meat which is trying to simulate the texture and the and the taste of meat right and um, and and that is again an important point that you brought up is um as an academic group what we are looking at is a new field and uh, there are uh, advantages to this uh, there are of course limitations to it and what we feel as an academic group is that it is our job to bring forth whatever the advantages are but also what are the downsides and the limitations of these things and so towards that what we are trying to do at McMaster is to start a research institute the first kind in Canada uh focused on the cell based meat and the various technologies that go into it but also looking into scale up production uh but look at it more closely from a genomic uh and proteomic way as to how similar or different it is compared to natural meat and how can we develop technologies to bring it closer and closer to natural meat it is a fascinating uh world out there that uh, that i clearly don't understand but it is it is so interesting dr p ravi selva ganapathy from mcmaster i very much appreciate your time today thank you for this Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you for being here today. Really appreciate you being along. We'll be back at 3 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, thank you to Tom for keeping us on the board. Uh, thank you to Will for lining up all the guests today. Thank you to our amazing guests. Mostly thank you to you for listening. We appreciate greatly that you come along and join us for a few hours every day. Uh, as I say, I'll be back at 6 tomorrow. Rick Zamprin starts off the day tomorrow morning bright and early at 5.30, less than 12 hours from now. Set your clock. It's almost time. Have yourself a great night. Talk to you soon. 